This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is The Edge of Analytics, a Business Radio special presentation from the floor of the 2019 MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Here's your host, Kate Massey. Hello and welcome to a Business Radio special program from the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and made the trip up to Boston a couple of weeks ago to attend something like the 12th or 13th episode issue edition of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. While there, we had a chance to sit down with a few of our favorite writers and analysts and thinkers in the world of sports analytics. We talked with David Epstein, writer and investigative reporter, Maria Konnikova, another writer and author of a new book, Anne Milgram, former attorney general of New Jersey, and she uses crime analytics to advance criminal justice. Ted Knutson, founder and owner of StatsBomb, leading frontier in soccer analytics. Marianne Turk, COO of the NFL, and John D. Fiore. John is head of the health efforts in the NBA. We also added one of our favorites from the previous year, Mina Kimes, investigative reporter, writer, and TV personality, Mina Kimes, from the 2018 conference. In the first half hour of the show, we're going to talk to Maria Konnikova. As many of you know, Maria is an author and a journalist and recently a Poker Stars team pro. She went to write a book about poker and wandered into the world of poker, turned out to be able to play a little poker. Fascinating conversation with Maria. Before we talked to Maria, we talked with David Epstein. David is best known for a book he wrote a few years ago called The Sports Gene, led to a big conversation about what is behind exceptional sports performance. He is a longtime writer with ProPublica and Sports Illustrated, and importantly has a book coming out called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. We had an interesting conversation about his argument that despite the narrative these days that the world is ever more specialized and therefore we have to focus and become more and more narrow, that it's actually those who are generalist who do better in the long run. That's our first half hour. Enjoy. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and today I'm on the floor of the conference. Now talking to David Epstein. David is a science writer and an investigative reporter. You probably know him from his best-selling book, The Sports Gene. Before that, he was a writer, including at Sports Illustrated. Before that, an all East Division eight hundred meter Division one eight hundred meter runner eight hundred meters man. Well, David, good morning and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being here. I've always thought of eight hundred meters as kind of like the toughest race because it's it's that distance you can't really pace yourself much, but it's a long time to go all out. Yeah. Are you are you still running and have you recovered from the scars of, of competitive eight hundreds? I'm I'm still running and it is that it's sort of like this riding the red line, right? So you either have a great race or you totally blow up. There's mm-hmm. like very high variance in your own personal outcomes. Okay. Um but you end up in that because like you wanted to be a sprinter and you didn't quite make it as a sprinter and you're dumb enough to like move up a little <laughs> bit in distance. So in a way when you get to college, like great, it's weeded out all the real sprinters. So it's sort okay. of it's it's the survival. Like nobody ends up, you know, in the eight hundred totally by choice, right. but, but it's, it's really useful, I think, because yeah, I just finished a second book, and I think of it the same way. It's like total torture in the middle, but at the wow. end, if you think you gave a good effort or did something kind of unique, you're like, maybe that wasn't so bad. <laughs> maybe I'll do it again sometime. <laughs> there's just enough failure of your memory to, to, <laughs> exactly. to rationalize it <laughs> away. 
So you're going to do a session with Malcolm Gladwell here at the conference, yep. and uh, you know, I, sometimes I think all of Malcolm's friends are runners. Basically, you get, he's, he's, you guys have that in common. He's like the biggest track nerd I have ever met. We, be- <laughs> we became running buddies after being on a panel at this conference in 2014. Is had never right? met before. Okay. Yeah, and like, so I'd show up to do his workout with him, and he'd like, "Did you see the results from Belgium and stuff?" And I'm like, "Wow, man," because I'm because I'm also a track nerd, but he's. Yeah, I mean he's a he's he's a borderline world class runner for his age group. Also, that's that's fantastic. What will y'all be talking about? So you've had these debates in the past. Is this going to be a continuation of the debate? I, I think partly it's going to be a continuation of the debate, but I don't think we're going to be as kind of pitted against each other this time. We sort of want to talk about uh, de- modern development of elite athletes, like sort of their their developmental path starting from when they're younger. And one of the things I've particularly been interested in is the timing of specialization for okay. young athletes. Okay. So. Um, in our first sort of discussion in, in 2014, I, I sort of knew that he was going to argue about the advantage of a head start. And so, well, so let's just be, be sure, clear about this. Sure. He, he is well known for talking about some, some work that's come out of psychology on right. the virtue of experience and this right. 10,000 hour. He kind of popularized this notion of 10,000 yeah. hour. You know, people misread it in some sense, but yep. he contributed that to, to a degree. And you come along with your book that says, yeah, you know, maybe maybe nature has a little bit more to do with, with this. Yeah. So that you guys kind of naturally had a conversation around that. Yeah. And you're saying from that grew this other interest. And maybe the second book to some extent flows from that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so... So when I, I knew he was going to talk about, so sort of one of the, the corollaries of the 10,000-hour rule was start as early as possible in narrow technical training because that's like the only thing that matters, the development of expertise. And so I went through all of the sports literature I could find, looking at all the longitudinal studies, right? Because when you look at the cross-sectional studies, in fact, the athletes who are elite practice more than the athletes who are at lower levels. Right. But when you look at the longitudinal studies, the athletes who are in the future going to become elite are doing less technical practice in the okay. domain in which they eventually go on to become elite. Let's be clear. This, this distinction may be lost on some folks, but cross-sectional, you can't say anything about causality in the cross-section. This right. is just correlation. It doesn't mean it's not useful, yeah, but, but in, that's in, right. But it could be misleading. That's right. And so you're saying the real test would be something like, I mean, the real test would be a, you know, a randomized controlled right. experiment. But right. in the absence of that, you need something longitudinal to understand the selection issues. Yeah, and, and some of the studies that have been done are pretty neat. So I, I thought that this would be so, – so you see this very distinct pattern of athletes who are going to go on to become elite. Um, what I called the Roger pattern. So when we argued about it, I said there's the Tiger Woods that everybody writes about and extrapolates to everything in the world. Okay. But I made the argument that golf is actually a uniquely poor uh, model of a, s- a skill model of what the things that most people want to learn. Basically, it's non-dynamic. Basically, you're trying to repeat certain behaviors with as little deviation as possible, right? right? Like, if, if sports weren't just entertainment, it would be like the most automatable of skills imaginable. And mo- okay. most sports aren't like that. So I think it's not good that we've extrapolated okay. from golf to these other sports. So in the other sports, what you see is this, the athletes who go on to become elite get this kind of diverse exposure to a wide array of sports, sort of like being like bilingual in sports. And then only later do they, they focus in, they learn about their own abilities and they gain this variety of skills. And then they start picking up any newer skills faster than their peers and they sort of pass over them. So t- let's talk about the causality of that, yeah. though. And yeah. we just, we just yeah. had this conversation this past week. We had um, a cardiac, no, I'm sorry, an orthopedic surgeon who does sports medicine down in Birmingham with Alabama athletes. And he talked about, you know, these kids these days, mm-hmm. they're over-specialized, and that, that repetitive, um, that rep- all those rep- repetitions can be strain on the body. And, yeah. and we came away from the conversation, we get it, we, we, we believe that. But is there, when you say, you know, the guys who turn out to be great play multiple sports, to what extent is it, is it, just revealing that they can play the, yeah. be- the best athletes can play multiple sports and if that's true can we really tell 
our kids these days. You know, you need to play four sports yeah, yeah. in order to pick this thing up. That that was one of my main questions. And in terms of the orthopedic surgeon, the injury stuff, I kind of think is interesting, but sort of ignore because I'm interested in skill development okay. as opposed to the, okay. the health aspect is different. Got it. Um, but I originally thought it was going to be totally just the better athletes can play more sports, and also the longer you delay selection, the more likely you get them into their best sport. Right. But then I started finding some of these studies where athletes would be, say, like soccer players would be matched at age 11 or 12 or 13, tracked over the next couple of years to see what they do, matched for assess skill level, and see who improves more, and it would be the kids that were doing multiple sports. Where are they running these studies? How can you do that? Yeah. Yeah, not in the United States, unfortunately. Wow. I mean, we don't so have centralized is... sports institutes like, you know, like the UK and Australia and the Netherlands and these places like that. So it doesn't really happen here. So is it the case that some? I mean, you just named benign governments. We could name some that are less benign. So if you're yeah. a big country and you have control over these things, you could run some experiments of sorts to figure totally. out how to identify the best athletes at the earliest age possible. Yeah, totally. So you're saying some folks have done some version of this. Some version of that, right? And again, you're, you're relying on people to be. Somebody is still assessing their skill at a certain age, right? And that's not perfect. But I think it's, I think that suggested to me that there might be more than just selection going on here okay. or the best athletes playing, okay. um, uh, you know, being able to play a whole bunch okay. of different sports. Although I think that is a factor. And I think that, that match quality, which the, the, the earlier you push selection, the more likely you put the wrong people in the wrong place or right. you pick based just on biological maturation or whatever it right. is. But I think there's this burgeoning body of evidence that there's actually a skill development benefit okay. to, to this breadth. In, in anticipatory sports, golf, different, different model. Anticip- uh, different so define anticipatory. Anticipatory sports are sports where uh, things are happening faster than human reaction speed is, is sufficient for. So you have to be judging what's coming based on body movements or ball movements, positions of players. So the reason that elite athletes look like they have superhuman reflexes is because they're actually seeing what's coming before it happens based on the arrangement of players and, and balls and things like that. So you're using this as an example of where generalization is especially helpful. I might have expected exactly the opposite. The more you need to lean on anticipation, the more you need pattern recognition. And everything we know about expertise is actually most of expertise is just pattern recognition. In, in things like chess and stuff like that, right? But those are, again, those are the, that's why one of the reasons why chess is like so easy to automate, relatively speaking, because it's like pattern recognition over and over, very rule-bound and things like that. Uh, I think sports is somewhat more dynamic because the other person is in real time trying to confuse mm-hmm. that pattern recognition, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so that kind of pattern recognition, that chunking, basically, right? It, that's what we use for language, too. And, I, right. and while I think a lot of the research on the benefits of, of growing up bilingual, for example, is, is pretty soft. There's some that shows that if you grow up bilingual, you're, you're delayed in some of your language development a little. But if you're given like a fake system of grammar, you're then better able to pick it up than someone who grows up monolingual. And I think that's a reasonable analogy to the kind of chunking that's used in sports to recognize wow. what's coming. Okay. So you, you, the book that's coming out, when, is this, when should we expect this? May 28th. May 28th. It's called Range... Why generalists triumph in a specialized world? How general an argument do you make? So we're talking about the development of elite athletes, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I assume this book is aimed beyond that. The introduction is sports. And then after that, it's almost completely outside of sports. So okay. music, art, uh, technology, medical research, scientific invention. Um, yeah, it goes... The idea is to use sports as the analogy for jumping okay, off so point. Okay, so if we took this to, say, our graduate students... Mm-hmm. What, what could we, when we read your book in May, yeah. what, what will we take out of that to say, okay, you, you know, future, what, pick your grad school. What advice, might, what advice might generalize to them about how they think about their professional development? Yeah, so f- for an example, I think there should be much, so I, I was a grad student uh, in geological sciences, right? And I was 
learning the I was living in the Arctic in a tent and learning the intricacies of Arctic plant physiology. And I can say now, having been a science writer, I realize how little I understood about scientific thinking, right? So I didn't learn about statistical malpractice that I was committing until I became a science writer. <laughs> okay. So I have papers published in journals now that I realize only as a journalist wow. that I was doing things wrong statistically okay. because I didn't learn scientific thinking. Okay. So I think there's a first great argument for them to zoom out, not really learn the specifics of their field, and learn how scientific thinking is supposed to work, okay. and then learn the approaches to problem solving um, across domains. So, so in one of the chapters in the book, I talk about using analogies from different domains and how that can be this incredible help for novel right. problem solving. Okay. And you see like what, a, a woman, Deidre Gentner, who's probably like the world's expert in analogical thinking, yeah. did these studies where she looks at like how able are students to kind of understand the underlying, the deep structure of a problem that's outside of their domain. Yep. And the students who did the best in these studies she did were the ones in this thing called the Integrated Science Program okay. uh, at Northwestern, where they sample they're basically it's like as if you have a minor in like every different science basically and they did really well at recognizing the deep structure of problems and using analogies from different domains to solve them and then i went around you know at the university and asked what do people think about the integrated science program and the professors say gets the kids behind on getting to their major so you know you really don't want them to get behind and now we're talking just like the parents of 12 year olds who want their kids to play summer baseball exactly it's the the cult of the head start you know and Mm -hmm. i think it's and i think usually those those youth sports programs are teaching closed skills primarily. So they, they teach the kind of skills where you can give this temporary advantage. I mean, it's the same issue with sort of Head Start academic programs where you see this fade-out, this ubiquitous fade-out effect. Okay. So it was just a meta-analysis of like 60 different Head Start programs, and they found this ubiquitous Remind fade-out. us what the Head Start program so it, is. So it's like early intervention um, for childhood academics, like okay. very early. And it, and it gives this great academic boost early on, and it completely fades out. Completely wow. fades out later on. Okay. And the problem is that the easiest way to give a head start is to teach what's called closed skills, which are, you know, sort of procedures, basically, not to give someone sort of the broader knowledge that helps them approach problem solving. So the fade out isn't that those kids are getting worse. It's that everyone's catching up. It's like teaching a kid to walk earlier, which, you know, may be kind of cool, but (laughs) there's like a month, but everyone will catch up and there's no evidence that it matters for anything in the future. All right. Well, listen, David, thanks for taking time out of your conference today and uh, wish you the best with your panel with Malcolm Gladwell and with the book coming out this spring. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You bet. David Epstein, science writer and investigative reporter. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and I'm on the floor of the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference now talking with Maria Konnikova. Maria is an author, journalist, and Poker Stars Team Pro. She's also a great follow on Twitter, by the way. She has many articles out for The New Yorker, and we're delighted to welcome you. Thanks for being here, Maria. Thanks so much for having me. So what brings you to Sloan, and have you been here before? I've never been here before, and I am here to talk about poker and how kind of analyzing the game of poker fits into analyzing sports in general. Okay. So it's not obvious that you found yourself in poker. It feels like, so you're, you're, how have you lived all the lives you're living? So you, <laughs> one minute you're doing a psychology PhD at Columbia, yep. and then you're writing New Yorker articles, great ones, and then you're competing in poker tournaments? How does this, how does this happen? Um, no sleep. <laughs> is that right? Well, sadly... no, no, I actually, I actually think that sleep is incredibly important. And okay. I wrote a big series for The New Yorker a number of right. years ago about sleep. Okay. So that, so actually the, the no sleep was tongue in cheek. Um, I often have not gotten enough sleep, but I think that that's, I would like every listener to get at least eight hours, but most people need more than eight. It really? is actually, yeah. Really? 
Yeah, and you, your cognitive function significantly dis- declines after that, even after one night. This would be a good uh, so, poker study because you could, you could measure people's and maybe even manipulate yeah. people's sleep and then see their performance. For sure, for sure. I think it's really important with athletes in general. But um, I came to poker for um, a book. So I um, had studied decision-making as a grad student, that was what my PhD was in, mm-hmm. um, and then had never wanted to be in academia. I always wanted to be a writer. Um, and so, so, how do you? Why do you go through a PhD program? And that's a long. That's a lot to is, do if you, you know, know you never want to be an academic. I am fascinated by the human mind, by why we do the things we do, what makes us who we are, mm-hmm. and I wanted to delve into it on a more deep level. Okay. And the way that you're intellectually stimulated constantly. Um, in a PhD program is not something that you experience in other environments. Okay. And I had an advisor, Walter Michelle, who um, was kind of this titan in the field. Who yeah. I was his last PhD student. Wow. He knew I didn't want to go into academia. This is what I was going to ask. Did your advisors know yes, this? He knew this um, wow, from the okay. beginning, and he supported it. Um, and he was someone who was incredibly well-rounded himself. Mm-hmm. And it was very, we had the funniest conversation. He said, "You know, if I were you right now, I wouldn't want to go into academia." either. I told him I wanted to write and he said, this is amazing. We need more people who understand psychology deeply and communicate it. And academia is not for everybody. It shouldn't be for everybody. There are huge trade-offs. And so then I started writing full-time. I wrote my first book actually in grad school. I took took a leave of absence to write Mastermind, which was my first book. um, And got very lucky and then it did well. So then I was able to write full-time. I see. Okay. Um, I did finish my PhD. Thank you, Mom. <laughs> Congrats. That's, that's a big deal. Um, it's a lot easier to start yes, than to finish. Yes. So I did finish. I went back. I finished. And then I started writing full time. Okay. And for my second book was about con artists. Yep. And then for my third book, I wanted to explore the role of luck in our lives. Okay. What is the balance of skill and chance? Can we learn to tell the difference? Um, can we learn this is everything? This yeah. is like everything. This is so general and so important. <laughs> exactly. But that's exactly the, the issue. It's so general. Mm-hmm. So if I were to come to my editor and say, I want to write a book about skill versus chance, my editor would say, <laughs> what's next? The book of life, right? That's, yeah, right. It, it's not something that you can really do because it's such a huge question and it's such an intricate part of life. And so I needed a way in, mm-hmm. um, And so what I do, my process before any big research project, before any book, before any big article is reading. I read as much as I can possibly get my hands on to stimulate my brain, to try to figure out, you know, where the connections are, what hasn't been covered, just to get the creative juices flowing. Um, And someone recommended when when they heard that I was interested in skill versus chance and in kind of learning how to dissociate the two, they said, have you studied game theory? And I okay. hadn't done much game theory, mm-hmm. but then I went to John von Neumann's theory of games. Okay. Kind of the Good place to go. Yep. All right. Foundational book and learned from that book that game theory came from poker, okay. that von Neumann was a huge poker player okay. and had realized that poker was the perfect mm-hmm. strategic decision-making environment for him to model complex human decision-making. He he was also a chess player. He also 
played bridge. He, he played a lot of games. Okay. But poker, to him, was the only one that actually mirrored life decision-making accurately because it was a okay. game of incomplete information. Right. Um, it was a game where you played people as well. Bluffing mm. was involved. All of these intricate elements. Can I just say one yeah. thing, though? Like, so I, I, I heard Jeff Moss say this yeah. on a podcast sometime in the past year. He said, because Jeff has very much the same orientation you do, but there is this wrinkle where, well, you know, there are only 52 cards and we know the exact probability. We don't know what the other person has, but there's a distribution of probability over Absolutely. what they have. And so things so, are more precise. Absolutely. It's, so that's why it's a good decision-making tool. Mm-hmm. Because if you if you had something that mirrored life exactly, it would be unwieldy. Right. Because life is unwieldy. Right, right, right. So you need something to circumscribe. You need a circumscribed environment right. in order to be able to build this. Good. So, so that's... Um, when I read that, I thought, oh, poker sounds interesting. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. And, but you're coming from scratch. I, I mean, like, I haven't scratch. played poker. I haven't no. read about poker. I haven't so, watched you know, poker. You know, you say, you know, it's, it's funny that you say with such confidence, obviously, there are 52 cards in the deck. The first time I met with the person who would become my coach, Eric Seidel, um, I didn't know how many cards were in the deck. <laughs> I, thought there were, I thought there were 54. And to this day, he has not let me live that down. I wonder if he, I wonder if he's like, okay, maybe I don't want this student. Like, maybe I don't want to sign up for this. No, he he was he was really interested in the project, but he you know he still jokes that the day that the jokers come right. up, I'm going to just win. I'm going to win everything. <laughs> so Maria, how does someone who doesn't know how many cards there are in the deck get Eric Seidel, such an accomplished player? Yeah. How do you get him as a coach? He never took students. He doesn't. That's not something he does. Um, I was not coming to it saying I want to become a poker champion. I was coming to it saying I'm a writer for The New Yorker. Um, I'm a psychologist. This is the background. My background is in the psychology of decision making. Um, I want to use this to explore life as a metaphor for life. I want to use this kind of as a through line, as a story for kind of these broader themes. And he thought... This is really interesting. Okay. And I think he took me on for a few reasons. First, he loves poker, and he wants to bring it to a wider audience. Okay, good. And I'm a wider audience because yeah. I'm not from the poker world. Okay. Secondly, and you have a megaphone to an even wider right. audience. And then he also thought it's a really interesting proof of concept because if he can teach someone from a psychology background, not a stats background, not right, a math, math. background, mm-hmm. which is kind of where the modern zeitgeist is, sure. that it's mm-hmm. all in the math. For sure. If he can teach someone like me, and if his approach ends up making me successful, then that's a huge proof of concept okay. about how important those things are in the game of poker. Okay. So does the fact that you... So this is interesting. It's not just that you want to understand poker well enough to use it as a metaphor for skill and chance in life. It's, I'm going to guess it's the case that you want to use your learning poker as the ability to learn the skills that are important Absolutely. for discerning skill and chance in life. Yes, that's very well put. Okay. Um, and the book was always going to be about my journey. And I didn't know if I was going to be good or not. I didn't know what was going to happen. And the book would have worked no matter what. Right? <laughs> it's going to work better because of the, <laughs> it's going to work because better, of the yes. way it went. <laughs> this is true. This is true. It's definitely going to work better this way. But it would have worked no matter what because that was never the point. The point was the journey. Yeah, it was right. the learning process. It was learning to distill all of these elements because poker is a game mm-hmm. and because you can so what you learn from psychology is about all these decision biases about how bad we are at thinking probabilistically how bad the human mind is in dealing with risk and evaluating risk mm-hmm. um what i studied in grad school was the illusion of control so mm-hmm. my my um 
my mentor, my advisor, studied self-control. He Mm -hmm. did the famous marshmallow studies. Mm -hmm. And so I actually took that to the extreme and said, well, what about people who think they're in control when they're not? Mm. Um, And that that was what I ended up studying. And... You know, you see that incredibly intelligent people actually end up being much more prone to the illusion of control in stochastic environments because they're so used to being in control normally and in understanding that they're sometimes the last to figure out that they're in an environment where they matter less, where their decisions actually matter less. To what what extent is that going to be one of the main themes that comes out of your book that people... I mean, this is my claim is generally that people underestimate the role of chance. Yes. And this is a real problem. I think that's I think it's a huge problem. And I think that's one of the things I hope to accomplish with my book is to make people understand that the role of chance is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and in poker, you really understand there's a, it's a skill game, ultimately. So I get, you know, when people so say, how do you, but what do you mean by that? So, like, how do you define that? So it's a game. Um, it's a game where. I can win with the worst hand and I can lose with the best hand. Right. And if it were a gambling game, so when people say, like, for instance, blackjack, that's gambling because I actually, in order to win, sure, I can count cards, I can understand the probabilities, I can have a strategy, but ultimately it's totally reliant on chance and I have to have the best hand to okay. win. Interesting and true, but we can say just the opposite, which is going to introduce the role of chance, does it not? Like I can, well, I can lose huge, with the best hand and I can win with the worst role, hand. There's a huge role of chance in poker as well. So it's kind of a question of, you know, people have, there have been like court cases about this. How do we, what does the percent need to be before we define think, it as I mean, a the, game of chance? I mean, the, the percent of skill in poker is much greater than 50%. It's yeah. greater than 70%. I would yeah. say it's greater than 80%. If I were to play against the best player in the world, I could win because chance, is, chance plays a role. But if we were to play 100 games, he would take all of my money. <laughs> okay. So this actually raises a question I'd love to hear your take on. Um, the, my understanding is that the top players in the world, they enter these tournaments. And even though it's a game of skill, and especially now that they're playing other guys with skill, the more everyone's equally matched, the more it becomes a, a function of chance. They go in knowing, mm, you know, I can play my best and still lose. And so yeah. I need to hedge that. And then they start farming out part of their winnings and they buy into other people's winnings. Absolutely. And, and this is remarkable because you think of these poker players as being like these risk takers and these bowl players. But it's precisely because they understand the yes. world that they diversify. Yes, you need to manage your risk. Mm-hmm. And the better you are, the better you have to be at risk management. Mm-hmm. I don't know a single really good player who's at the top of the game who has 100% of their own action. Remarkable. It just it doesn't happen because you need you need to understand variance. Mm-hmm. And it's such hubris in anything in life to think that variance doesn't play a role. I mean, it's variance is important in every single profession, mm-hmm. in every single thing that mm-hmm. we do. Mm-hmm. And people people hate to acknowledge that I think as a mm-hmm. matter of course mm-hmm. because um, it means that there's something other than you. It's incredible. It means that there are things that you just you have to let go of. But but only by acknowledging that can you actually take yes. the steps to adapt to it. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, you get yourself in trouble precisely because you don't acknowledge exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. This sounds like a great book. Very much looking forward to um, when it comes out. Wish Thank you the you. best with it. Maria, thanks for stepping away from the conference for a little bit and spending some time with us. We wish you the best with the panel Thank and you. with the conference. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You bet. Maria Konnikova, author, journalist, poker player, and um, the author of an upcoming book on skill and chance, using poker to kind of make that a little bit more concrete. Thank you. Thank you.
That was Maria Konnikova, writer for your New Yorker and author of a new book this year called The Biggest Bluff on Poker and Skill versus Chance in Life. Before that, David Epstein, another writer and author of an upcoming book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball. In this half hour, we have Ted Knutson, owner and founder of StatsBomb. StatsBomb, for those of you who don't know, is the leader, probably, private provider of statistics in soccer at the frontier of soccer for more than 10 years now. Great conversation with Ted about how he's gotten where he is, the various iterations he's seen in his life from gambler to inside the sports book to helping sports teams to now doing his own thing and spreading analytics throughout soccer. Before that, we talked to Ann Milgram. Ann is professor at NYU Law School. She was famously the attorney general in New Jersey, where she brought the kinds of analytics and data-based decision-making to criminal justice that we so often talk about in sports and in business, but we see her pushing it in criminal justice. Fascinating conversation within. Enjoy. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and I'm on the floor of the conference now talking with Ann Milgram. Ann is professor at the NYU Law School. She's a professor of practice and distinguished scholar there. She runs the Criminal Justice Lab. Before that, famously, she was New Jersey's attorney general. And she uses analytics in a way many sports analytics people would be familiar with, but she uses it in criminal justice. And thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Appreciate nice your, you. Appreciate your being here. Anne has also spoken at the Wharton People Analytics Conference a few years That's ago. Right. And she's on a panel this afternoon or this afternoon? This afternoon. This afternoon on analytics in the Wild West. They, the, yes. the folks around here at the sports conference allow themselves one non-sports panel. And they brought Ann for, in for that. What do you think you're going to be talking about? How can how, Why are you here, Ann? And what are you going to be talking about with all these sports people? Yeah, so um, I was surprised by the invitation, but excited. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, I follow sports analytics. But the idea was basically to sort of look at other industries and spaces and see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating about criminal justice and why I love to come to places like this is that we are so far behind in the criminal justice space on data and analytics. Okay. There's no rules of collecting data. Local jurisdictions do it however they want, if at all. The police department does it separate from prosecutors and from courts. And so where something like sports or healthcare is, is wildly ahead of where criminal justice is. Are there people in the criminal justice system who, when that is pointed out to them, find it motivating? Like this is an opportunity? Look what these other fields are doing? Yeah. You know know what? Yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. And I spend a lot of my time at NYU talking to people throughout the country about how they can use data analytics. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now we're building a tool for the Indianapolis Police Department to help them screen for mental health, substance abuse, homelessness. So it's sort of a question in my mind is how do we use data and analytics most effectively to increase public safety, reduce incarceration, and increase fairness and equality. And so, you know, how to use data in those spaces, it really depends. It, it really requires um, a commitment from local jurisdictions to do it. So can you tell us what that looks like? So a, a product for Indianapolis, what, is, what are some of the specifics there? Right. So that's a, that's a great question. So the just a tiny bit of background. My, my work in New Jersey when I was AG, I ran the Camden Police Department, and that's where I first started using data and analytics. We dropped violent crime by 41% in one year, and my I gosh. basically realized the power of data and analytics. And part of it is just understanding your system, right? which we had no insight into what we were doing, where officers were located, where the violence was happening, who was committing the violence. So you've got some people who would be animated by, in a positive way, by the success outside of criminal justice with data, so therefore they want to do things. I'm sure you have people who are 
um, reluctant or yes. even opposed. Yes. And one of the conversations that's happening in lots of quarters right now is kind of a sophisticated opposition, which is it's not against analytics, it's against biased analytics. Right. And that if you're trying to build these models, how do you avoid some of the institutional biases that are in the old data? So, for example, you know, the, the classic examples are it looks like African-Americans are they come into the models as a as a like a negative predictor because historically they've, they've, there's been biases against them. Yeah, this is such an important conversation, and it, it is part of the conversation we're going to have here, and we should have nationally. Data and analytics are a tool. Tools can be good and tools can be bad, and I think that's a lot of the conversation we should be having is what do those tools look like, who gets access to them, what information. But let me say one thing on the bias in criminal justice data. The short answer is yes. The, the data is biased. The criminal justice system is biased, right? There is a structural inequality that exists in our criminal justice system. So to me, and you know, I'll give you an example, I ran, when I was AG, the state juvenile justice system. It was 98% minority. That simply cannot be right. And so there are structural problems. The foundation of the system has structural inequalities. And so the data has biases. I would argue the data in education is the same types of biases. In healthcare, the same, right? There are, there's inequity of care and access to education. But to me, when we think about criminal justice data, there's sort of two really important points. First of all, the system is biased. And so it's not a question of we're working with the perfect system and the data will make it biased. We're we're working with a deeply biased system that we have to figure out how to make fair, more equitable, Mm -hmm. and more just. And Mm so the question isn't perfection. The question is, can we improve it? Mm -hmm. Right? So Mm -hmm. that's the first point. The second point is that, again, the data and the algorithms can be good or bad depending on how, they, how they're built, how they're used, what kinds of work is done on avoiding and minimizing data bias. And so to me, it's not a question. I, you know, We live in a country, 70 million Americans have criminal records, which is completely unacceptable. So to me, the question is, how do we use data in a way that we're all comfortable with mm-hmm. to improve a system that is deeply broken? And mm-hmm. so... You know, it's like if I said to you, you shouldn't use an airbag because Toyota once made a bad airbag. The answer is you should use a good airbag mm-hmm. and you should use it in a way that you feel comfortable. And that may be not the best analogy, but there's a lot of ways to think about how do we use data transparently, safely, openly to protect people's rights and equalities and actually to make things better. Mm-hmm. Can I give you one quick example? Please. The risk assessment tool I built when we were at the Arnold Foundation, the state of New Jersey has now used it to largely eliminate bail. And bail is a financial condition that's set and that is essentially keeps people in jails across America. If you can't pay $500, you stay in. Okay. So New Jersey used the algorithm as the base level. The judges still make all the decisions of who gets released and detained. So, so the algorithm, is a, is, it stands in for the judge saying whether or not they need to be detained or not. It doesn't stand in for the judge. What it, it advises does is, them. It takes, it, yes, it advises them. It basically takes the factors that judges already consider, prior criminal convictions, right. whether or not the current offense is violent, and this is all transparent. And then it gives that information to the judge who then looks at who the person is, what the crime is that's been committed, and then the judge makes a decision. New Jersey's jail is down by almost 40% in one year, right? And so when you think about reducing incarceration and how to move systems, the data is critical and having more objective measures is critical. So 
how, what have you found about judges' willingness to lean on that advice? And if people studied that, because yes. I've done some research that find people are reluctant to use algorithms, and maybe they like it until they make, until they make a decision and then it proves to be wrong. So right. even if they're right nine <laughs> yeah. times out of ten, as soon as that algorithm goes wrong, they're like, well, this thing is junk. Right. So David Epstein, who I think you guys are going to talk to mm-hmm. next, mm-hmm. Um, said something to me once that I think is one of the most brilliant things in this space, which is that we hold we don't hold people to a standard of perfection we're pretty forgiving when it mm-hmm. comes to things like bias but we hold technology to a standard yes, of perfection absolutely. and that's really true right um about judges so first of all i've been yelled at by judges across the united states of america <laughs> so let me just say that who've told me i know better my gut is better and my answer has always been look this is about this is about data plus gut right i'm not telling you to take right. your gut out i'm telling you take some information that can actually combine factors and and things in a way that judges couldn't do yeah. But what was profoundly impactful for the judges and the reason why I think that nationally the tools in use in over 40 jurisdictions is that we ran the underlying data in a lot of court systems. And you see this incredible thing where judges, they want low-risk people to be out, to take their kids to school, to go to jobs. And they want high-risk people, the people who are dangerous and pose a risk to society, to be incarcerated. And when you actually pull the data in jurisdictions, which, by the way, no jurisdiction does on a regular basis, you see huge percentages of low-risk people being detained on low amounts of money bail. And you see about half, the high-risk group is about 10% of all people or less. It's really small. But you see half of those people being let out in almost every jurisdiction. Those people can afford huge amounts of money or judges undervalue risk. When you show that to a judge and you can say, you want one thing to happen, the exact opposite is taking place, that changes the entire conversation. Okay. okay. Well, the way you're talking about this is just exactly the way analytics around here gets talked about because that conversation, and it's not as important as what you're doing, but that persuasion effort inside buildings, inside with coaches or personnel guys or players, it's the same thing. It's the exact yeah. same conversation. How do you convince someone where you know the model is helpful? You're not saying replace their judgment right. just as an advisory thing. But you've still got to convince them that this very different way of thinking is effective. Have you been yelled at by a lot of coaches? <laughs> <laughs> or General owners. managers, yeah. owners. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun challenge. Yeah. It is a fun challenge. But it, but it, but it, but it means you've got to be better. It's more than just being good at numbers. You've got, yes. to have, you've got to have some ability to convince people, persuade them. It's not just about having a better regression. Yes. You're running around the country doing this with, with criminal justice. Listen, and thank you so much for taking time out of your conference. We wish you the best with the work, for sure, and also have fun with the conference today. Thank you. Thanks right. so much. You bet. See you. Take care. This is SiriusXM Business Radio Special Program from the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and I'm on the floor of the conference here talking with Ted Knudsen. Ted is owner and founder of StatsBomb. He's been involved in the sports analytics business in some capacity his entire career. Out of Chicago, did a little undergraduate work at the University of Oklahoma, grad work, Emory, has lived in Charlottesville before going to the Caribbean. Now he's in London. And very interesting career. Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Appreciate your being here. We've got an 11 o'clock session coming up here um, at the conference. You're going to be with Daryl Morey. Yeah. Um, talking about what? Give us a little sense of what that, that session's going to be about. I, it was very kind of Daryl, like an amazing offer to. <clears throat> he's been talking about his own soccer opinions on Twitter for a while, and <clears throat> Daryl has some interesting opinions that <laughs> may or may not be uh, validated by some of the world's greatest coaches, and so he offered to to use that as a context to kind of talk about where soccer analytics is and where it might be going and how far behind it is. Of like everybody's behind baseball, but um, you know NBA is quite 
quite good. Right. And so we're not anywhere near there. Does Does Daryl think that NBA has jumped baseball? I mean, if we were going to compare, they, they baseball had such a head start, but then ownership is just so much more advanced in basketball. And it seems like they kind of leapt, leapt over them. I don't know what Daryl thinks, but I've talked to some people in baseball who also keep their you know, fingers in the in the basketball world and now with all of the technology that baseball has like it's another leap forward i see okay so technology has helped them jump forward it's um, amazing like the high-speed cameras and everything that's going on there yeah, and like the the, launch angles and exit velocities and pl- training the players like so this is like a new era there's almost like three eras of how right. sports analytics uh happens and data is applied to it so like the first era is always we're going to analyze players like how can we find better players on the cheap how can we spend money on this thing more this is classic money right early 2000s it Billy is. Bean absolutely okay. and it makes sense because like when you look at it from a business perspective which you know apparently you guys have some attachment to mm-hmm. uh, it's it's your biggest asset center mm-hmm. but also your biggest cost center so like mm-hmm. if we can make that more efficient it's really good and useful and then the next phase is how do we play the sport better and how do we find coaches that play the sport better right what are the superior strategies by the way and how do we talk the coaches into using those superior strategies still tricky mm-hmm. always tricky <laughs> and then and then the last one is really all right the the market is mostly efficient for players so how do we find players and then make them better? And that's where the player development comes in. And that really is where the tech comes in. And you start disrupting the coaching element of it. Disrupting it in that you're giving the coaches new tools to work with. You're, re, you're changing how they should be coaching. They've been doing one thing for, I don't know, decades. And now you're saying, eh, this is a, we need to go about this a little differently. Well, you're not only doing that, but you're completely revolutionizing the population of coaches because okay. the old style ones don't have the skill set. So either they have to learn the new skill set right. and be open to that, or right. you just don't use those guys anymore. Right. And you see a revolution of who's employed as coaches because they're much more technology open and, and willing to sort of push the boundaries of how we can train players more scientifically. Okay, That's huge. It, it, it is, and, and it's, I think it's a great way to think about it because it does show that baseball has jumped ahead of the other sports because it does feel like baseball's farther advanced in that front. I mean, they, they, I mean we've, we've heard I mean, players are reconstructing their swing based on what they've learned through this new technology. Yeah, and the, the way the bullpens are used. and There's just mm-hmm. so many little things that have changed about the game that are really about optimality and mm-hmm. how do we find something that is just a little bit better than it used to be. And it often involves destroying the common wisdom and finding a better way. Okay. So we've been talking baseball. Your specialty, of course, is soccer. Can you give us a, a little background on Stats Bomb? You, you were involved in soccer in a variety of capacities. A little background on you. You, you. you did some gambling, then you went in-house with Pinnacle, which is probably the, the most highly reputed sports book maybe out there, one of the most influential sports books out there. You created some of the important products like live betting and NBA. Then you pop over and start doing your own thing on soccer. You've worked inside some teams. That's right. And now you have your own organization, Stats Bomb. One of the things you all have done is looked around the world and said, we don't have the data we need to do the analysis we want, so we have to build our own data. So can you tell us a little bit about how you've gone about that and, and, where, and what you're primarily interested in now at this point? So I came out of the the teams in 2016, and I looked around and I wanted to kind of like build our product set for our next team. Like, how do we how do we start the ground hit the ground running? You know, I don't want to spend the time like building the tech for this. Like, I'd let's just like let's go when we get there. So we did it ourselves, and this way I would own it, and we could we could you know bring it wherever we wanted to. But looked around and realized that instead of for my next team, all teams could use this. So suddenly you've gone from this is my next job to this is a business. Mm-hmm. And uh, so our first thing that we did in like 
February of 2017 was we uh, built a, an insight business layer effectively over data. And it was a different data company. And we'd been using that data company since I started in, in football in 2013. But what we were finding was that we were running up against the edges of the data and what we could really explore with that. Um, so we hit a point where like some frustrations with that, also some frustrations with like customer service, etc. And we, we decided that, you know, what if we did our own? And so we looked around the market, tried to find somebody to partner with, because obviously this is hard. Right. The logistics. So let's, let's be clear about the industry. So you would love to have motion tracking data. Yes. And it's technologically available, but not outside of teams. And so you don't have what you really need. So you've got, and nobody can get it if you're not working for a team. So you've got to go construct your own. That's right. And we use event data. And it, actually, if you have to choose between tracking or event, you'd still choose event as one of the, like, the thing that you need to have. Because these are the actions that are having, so okay. you're able to profile skill sets, etc. Okay. Um, so anyway, uh, but you'd love both if you could have them. Well, the combination would be the, the, okay. the combination's the best, and that's one reason why NBA has amazing data and baseball is is also just almost primarily event based. But right. like they have so much information packets into it. Yep. So yeah, we uh, uh, May of two th- th- uh, 2018 we launched our own data, and now we're on 25 leagues that we collect and mm-hmm. growing rapidly. And mm-hmm. uh, but it was really to. One, to combat like the, the problems that we had or the holes that we were finding in, in competitor data. But the other one was to start answering coaches about the things that they brought that they didn't like or that we couldn't directly say, well, yeah, you're, you're right. We don't have that. So like, maybe we can fix that. Right, right. Well, so talk a little bit. Well, let's be, clear. let's be clear. You constructed your own data through a combination of computer vision and manual input. So you've got a, you guys own an organization in Egypt, I believe, where you've got guys hand coding spending 12 hours on a match hand coding everything that happens and pairing that with computer vision this is a heck of an effort uh you know some of it's baby steps but like you know part of it is can we make our collection more productive and part of it is um can we continue using the same number of hours but then collect new things as the the algorithms take over and also make you know potentially fewer errors or have better uh, locational sense because you know a human doing this is quite a taxing thing if you ever collect data you realize that it's fairly miserable <laughs> i can imagine right right Okay, so you've got the data now, and you're involved. You, you, you probably do a little bit of gambling. You probably want to sell some products to gamblers, but you're also advising teams. Tell us, a, my, 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 my understanding of you from having seen your work and talked to you a bit is that your analytics are informed by your experience as a gambler, and your analytics are informed by your experience inside clubs and talking to coaches. How, how do you think you go about your analytics differently from because of that experience. Well, I, I can I can assure you that the way that I would have done things in 2007, one was probably wrong, but two, uh, it was very different because of the experience tempers a lot of the things that you say and how you uh, how you communicate. And, okay, can, but that's a fascinating word you use there. It tempers how you communicate. Which like, give us an example of how that experience has tempered what you say. Well, from, so I can tell you like how the gambling experience like sort of pushes into this. Uh, you put out a model, and then the traders are testing the model against the market, right? And so, like, if some at, at Pinnacle, especially like where you have a lot of liquidity, you find out that something's wrong fairly fast. <laughs> and if you're wrong, it's terrifying because you're like, well, we could lose, you know, not anywhere between ten and one hundred and fifty thousand on this silly little game that, that's there. Okay. So when the the traders are pushing back because they're seeing real world information and often have some sport experience, then you're like, all right, so the model might be wrong in these ways and we're picking up that information on a regular basis where might the holes be so we can improve that that goes directly into the team space as well where the coaches are like you don't know this information or this chance is better than your model thinks it is and you're like 
sure, coach, you're, you're right. But like, unfortunately, we can't use your eyes in order to codify every single thing that goes yep. on. There are not, you know, 150 of you to look yep. at every single game. So we've got the model here. But at some point, you have to admit that he's got a point. Right. And can we improve the data to mm-hmm. incorporate his opinion a little better in an objective way mm-hmm. and then produce better information? Mm-hmm. I think with the benefit, you get this some with coaches, but especially with gambling, you get reps. You get reps that most people don't get. I mean, one of the beautiful things about sports gambling is that there's resolution to these events and usually pretty quickly. And so you're, I mean, this is what you need to learn is you need feedback and repetition. And you're getting that in a way there you don't get it other places. It strikes me that you don't get it in such a pure way as a and with the coaches so they, they they have opinions and they've got experience but it's not quite as black and white and not quite as highly repeated as it is as it is when you're betting so what's amazing with coaches is like often I've, we found this inside of soccer especially people who have degrees don't understand how coaches learn and this actually was like this crucial paradigm for us because we wanted them to start to build skill sets that allowed them to coach the game in a better way and we're telling them what the better way is. But the problem is you can't just learn this. Right? And coaching is a very uh, hands-on, almost an apprenticeship type thing. Mm-hmm. You can't pick it up from book learning because you have to have visual cues that allow you to, to interrupt things and say this is, quite, this is wrong. So what happened was at an ownership level or even at a director of football level where everybody's like very highly degreed and very intelligent and has you know, gone to school, then you go to the coach level and you need to either give them somebody that has this knowledge already to then transfer the knowledge and, and help bolster that right. or you have to allow them to fail which you can't do in sports. Mm. So how do you get the reps in order to have this new information? Right. Good. Have you answered that yet? Mm. We, we have some ideas, but it, I, I would say that's very much a, mostly in the nascent idea stage. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things I know you're trying to do is to pair your data with, with video. And um, that seems critical. So as analysts, we're not impressed with like a video of an event because it's just an anecdote. But when it comes to communicating, and especially with folks like coaches who are, have learned, as you say, from, from experience and from apprenticeship, that's a powerful combination. It's like you, they, if they can't see it, they're not going to believe you. But that's, if you just let them see it one time, all of a sudden thing. they believe the regression. Uh, they're, they're inherently skeptical uh, because they've learned most things through their own knowledge, and that makes sense. They're not wrong. Uh, also, like video conveys so much more information than yeah. your basic data set. Yeah. So when they're able to combine it and say, all right, the video and the data are the same and we're just giving you information. We're not giving you stats and data and whatever. That's scary, right? I mean, new things are scary to everybody, yeah. even the, the people that like to learn. So we give you information. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And the video here backs that up. Mm-hmm. So like, we've got an error check. And as you do that more often, you build a relationship so they're comfortable with it. And it doesn't have to even be with you. It just has to be with your data and your product. Yep. It, it's interesting you say it that way. It, it makes me think it almost changes the way they think about the data if it comes with a picture, if it comes with a video. All of a sudden, it's, as you say, information. It's not a statistic. Right, and, and the players are the same way too. And actually, one of the things that we spend a lot of time on as a company is producing better visualizations. Mm-hmm. How do we produce visualizations that take a lot of data and then convey it into pictures that just make sense? Mm-hmm. And, and some of that's like A-B testing in some ways, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is just you know realizing as, as quants, you... You look at the data and you might plot the data just like double check what the distributions look like and stuff like that. In real world application, data visualization is massively powerful. Right, right. So but we're going to have to wrap up shortly, sadly, but I want to hear something more technical about what you're finding in soccer. So take us back to the beginning of the conversation. You're about to talk to Daryl about where soccer is compared to other sports. And 
necessarily almost it's behind baseball and basketball, but you're still doing some cutting edge stuff and you're trying to come up with measures, new measures, kind of creating measures in soccer because they haven't existed before. Can you tell us about this, the passing, the progressive passing? I forget the exact term you use, but it's something you're trying to figure out about the way ball, the ball moves down the pitch. So the, the funny little thing about soccer is that everybody thinks of the goals and the shots, but it's really a passing game. They're like a thousand passes in a game uh, and 30 shots in a game. So it's a passing game that happens to have shots and goals at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And so when you're trying to evaluate players, what you want to look at is, yes, we look at the passes, but really it's about ball progression, right? The, the attack, is it's an attacking invasion sport. The mm-hmm. hockey is, NBA is as mm-hmm. well. Um, so we started early on profiling passing and expected passing difficulty and stuff like that. Um, some very interesting papers that, that were secret for quite a while that okay. then got later released from other people. And then we looked at it and said, but that's not the only way you can move up the pitch, right? You can move up via dribbles, you can move up by carrying the ball. And so we started to get to the point we wanted to look at holistic ball progression. So who's taking the ball in the most dangerous areas? What does the pitch real estate model look like that we've used from elsewhere? Okay. And then, you know, when you're able to progress the ball, uh, especially when our data starts to have pressure on it. So if you're progressing under pressure, that has an added degree of difficulty. Right. If you succeed with added difficulty, you become really interesting as okay. a player that you might want to recruit. Okay. Terrifically interesting. And I can only imagine how complicated it is to sort all of that because it's one thing to talk about those concepts, but then you've got to operationalize it in some objective way and hopefully in some way that scales algorithmically. It's a... we're still a tech company and all of the things that you have with tech debt and, and sort of it's like sometimes wrong path, uh, wrong paths that you take in like research as well. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's always challenging. It's yeah. new research. It's, it's almost like an academic pursuit that happens to have a business model. It sounds attached. like it. It really does sound like it. All right. I always say Texas, Oklahoma in the cotton bowl in October, best sporting events you can go to can't beat the atmosphere, but you're a premier league guy and you live in London how does it compare? How does the Cotton Bowl, Texas, Oklahoma, on a good year, when they're, both, when they're both at the top of their game, compare to some match in and around the Premier League? Premier League has pretty good, but I would have to say that the Dortmund knocks it out of the park. Right? Really? Bruce Dortmund and the, really? the German atmosphere and the yellow wall, it is outstanding. And it's outstanding almost every week. It's almost like a, a fan performance by, by 70,000 people. <laughs> It's really incredible. I, I will say, though, that, that college football is probably the only sport in the United States that has the same level of passion as European okay. football. Okay, terrific. All right, listen, Ted, thanks for joining us. Have fun at the conference, and good luck with your session with Daryl coming up. Thank you very much. That was Ted Knudsen, owner and founder of Stats Bomb in the soccer analytics world. This is Cade Massey, Wharton Moneyball co-host. This is a business radio special presentation from the floor of the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference in Boston, Massachusetts. You're listening to The Edge of Analytics, a business radio special presentation from the floor of the 2019 MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Here again, Kate Massey. Welcome back. This is a business radio special presentation from the floor of the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball. In the next half hour, we have two fantastic guests from the big leagues, the home offices. John DeFiori, director of sports medicine with the NBA, still practicing medicine, helps run a practice in New York. Before that, the big doc for the UCLA athletic department, the whole department, and now helping look after the health and wellness of players in the NBA. He does things like proselytize good practices even for youth basketball he sits on the wearables committees helping them figure out how to improve the health and fitness of the nba players before that marianne turk coo of the nfl she oversees all facets of the nfl's operations marketing technology nfl film she comes out of the media world she also has 
the corporate functions, HR, public relations, government relations. Longtime exec with Bell Media up in Canada. She worked her way up from operations. She has engineering degrees, two engineering degrees, and she's bringing all that engineering savvy, operations experience, and media expertise in her role as the COO. Fun conversation with her about what's going on these days there. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball on the floor of the conference, now talking with Dr. John DeFiori. John is the director of sports medicine with the NBA. He is still practicing there in New York after spending a long time over on the West Coast with UCLA, 23 years at UCLA, head team physician for the UCLA Department of Athletics, where he was overseeing something like, I don't know, the health care of 650 athletes and 24 NCAA sports. That's a real athletic program. John, yes. thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, especially after the Bruins beat UCLA, USC, I should say. <laughs> All basketball, right. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, it's a rough season for the Bruins, but uh, they managed to beat the Trojans. So. Well, you know, the Bruins had one of the great sports highlights of the young year with that gymnast uh, oh, yeah. a month ago or whatever. Yeah, Coach mean, Val. It's not often that a gymnastics, a collegiate gymnastics yeah. routine goes as viral as that thing did. Yeah, she, she's, a, she's a, a tremendous gymnastics uh, program at UCLA, Valcondo's field. Uh, has been the coach there for many years. Okay, uh, I believe seven NCAA championships. Oh wow! Looking for her eighth this year. Okay, they got a big uh, competition coming up against number one ranked team this weekend. Okay, you know, is that so, how collegiate gymnastics works? Their matches? One, yeah, they one, have, well, they call them yeah you know, gymnastics meet, and so so they have a uh, uh, you know direct competition with other teams, okay. and then they advance hopefully for uh, NCAA you know championships. Which, okay. Um, is where they determine the champion. So it's like golf, probably in NCAA, where you have the matches and then you advance to the NCAAs, and then it's team and individual at the Correct. same time. Okay, Correct. got it, got it, got it. Yeah. So how did you transition from that kind of work? This is a big, big move yeah. from that yeah. kind of work, which is it's West Coast, it's all sports, it's collegiate, yeah. to East Coast basketball professional. So uh, I, this is actually starting my fifth year with the NBA. So I actually started working with the NBA when I was the team physician at UCLA. Okay. Um, and uh, it, it, it seemed to um, be something when I was talking to the folks at the NBA about it, it, it seemed to, at that point, be an opportunity to impact um, a larger you know, group of individuals in the sense that what we do at the NBA has implications for not just youth basketball, but other sports as well. Okay. And so I, I think that was very interesting to me. Um, I think the league is very progressive in, in the way they think about player health. Um, and uh, I think Adam Silver, the commissioner, is, is very interested in that. I also can tell you that his counterpart, Michelle Roberts, um, with the Players Association, feels the same way about player health. I think from my standpoint as a physician, as a sports uh, clinician and researcher, having the two leaders of a sport have a sincere, genuine interest in promoting player health makes this job very, very exciting for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we're doing some good things. I think there's a lot of good things to come down the road. Talk to us about what the key issues are in the NBA. When we think about professional sports health issues, it's so obvious, you know, concussions in football mm-hmm. are such a big deal. Um, we don't hear about that as much in NBA. We don't hear There's no one that stands out as much, right. at least to the layperson. Right. Where, where do you guys consider the greatest opportunities and challenges there? Yeah, it's a very good question. In fact, when um, I, I started with the league for now, I'm in my fifth year, but 
We actually asked that exact question. Um, we formed a research collaboration with GE Healthcare. And the, the collaboration started uh, by forming what we call a strategic advisory board. So we have individuals who are experts in various aspects of sports medicine and sports science, including some team physicians, athletic trainers, um, uh, representation from the Players Association. And this group of scientists came together. And the first question that we asked was, okay, what do we think are the biggest priorities in terms of player health in the NBA mm -hmm. that we can impact with this research program? Mm -hmm. And so for, it was really because we're focused, this particular project is focused on musculoskeletal okay. care. So we came up with four areas that we thought were either high frequency, high impact, or both. So things that potentially would cause players to um, miss games, but that they ultimately would recover from, or other injuries that could potentially affect their career. Um, and so we have engaged in a really intensive research projects where we have calls for abstracts from all over the world. And now we're in the phase where grants have been administered to universities, um, again, internationally as well as nationally. And the projects are underway looking at things like patellar tendinopathy, which is a, a consistent ongoing problem in, in basketball at every level. What's the lay definition? Patellar ten <laughs> tendinitis of the patellar tendon. And so okay. it's a, what some people call jumper's knee. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's a, a condition that affects a lot of players. Okay. Um, we're looking at things like specific types of knee problems that affect um, the bony surface of the knee that can affect a player's longevity um, and their careers. Um, and we're looking at bone stress injuries. Um, and so there's a combination of research projects going on in those areas. So we think those are key areas. Now, outside of musculoskeletal uh, injuries, we have spent a lot of time developing mental health programs in collaboration with the Players Association. I think we now have more um, uh, care available for players than we've ever had in the league um, and uh, with the Players Association, we're working uh, to develop better programs, working with teams to provide them um, templates for um, uh, programmatic approaches. How, how much progress have you made on the stigma around that kind of thing? The, I would think that well, this would be a, generally the culture has a stigma around uh, that mental health care. And I would think in professional sports, it might even be stronger. So it seems like I'm guessing one of your biggest challenges is first, we have to destigmatize this thing. Well, I, I give all credit to the players. I, I think the players who recently have made public statements, including mm -hmm. players like Kevin Love and DeMar mm -hmm. DeRozan, they do far more to remove the stigma of mental health conditions than anything that we could do at the right. league level or teams could do. I, I think it's been remarkable. And uh, I know personally, I, I, you know, Kevin obviously was at UCLA. I, I'm just grateful for, for those individuals to come out and, you know, tell their story a little bit. Um, I think it impacts not only players in the league, but younger players, younger individuals who sure. maybe never will be athletes, who see someone in, in the spotlight saying, yeah, I, I've got this issue and I'm, I'm working to take care of it. For sure. What, do you have any sense of what the impetus was? Why now? Multiple guys coming out now. And to, was, to what extent did you guys encourage that? Because you know that would be the most effective means of proselytizing those services to other players. Well, you know, it's a good question, why, why now? And I don't think I can answer that concretely, but I, I think over the years we have learned, uh, and I certainly have seen a number of young athletes 
collegiate level, youth level, struggle with these issues. And I think organizationally, national organizations, sports medicine leaders have recognized this. And we try to create a recognition with the players that we work with that, you know, it's, it's important to talk about these things and we want to, we want to help you. And this is going to help you as a person. It's going to help you pursue your interests, whether it's sports or other things. Mm-hmm. And it just seems to me that that maybe has built up over time to where players have felt comfortable with that. And, um, the biggest challenge I think now is partly, you know, the, the, the stigma to the extent that it continues to be an issue, but I also think, Making sure that players have care and that it can be maintained, um, the the sort of confidentiality can be maintained for them so that they can right. get the care that they need without worrying that, um, as in any health issue, that someone else is going to use it to for their own purposes in a public setting. Right, right. Um, this is an issue in the population as a whole, of course. Is there something special about professional athletes and you're working with basketball players, do you think that there are special mental health challenges with that particular population? I mean, is it for working with that kind of the pressure, the performance, the public nature of failure when there is failure or those, do those all exacerbate kind of the natural human challenge? I do. I think they, I think they do create significant challenges um, when you're in the public setting all the time. Um, and I also think the nature of being a professional athlete, particularly in the NBA, where, you know, like some other sports like baseball and hockey, you're traveling a lot. Um, it's mm-hmm. a stress on home life. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're married, you have children, trying to maintain what we most of us would consider as normal right. day-to-day interactions is not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a different, it's a different lifestyle. And I, I think it does create challenges for people to maintain the, the communication that mm-hmm. they need to with their families, mm-hmm. with their friends, with mm-hmm. their support. Um, and I think these are all things that the league and the player association are very um, cognizant of and are trying to support the players. Got it. Well, John, we're at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, so there's, there's lots of analytics, there's lots of technology floating around here. Of course, in the world of sports analytics, motion tracking is kind of transforming things. And so you've got these players wearing devices that allow us to follow them and understand them in a way that we've never been able to before. But right with that comes this privacy issue and who owns the data issue. And you are on the wearables committee that the NBA has put together where you're sitting down with guys from the player side as well trying to figure out, I assume you're trying to figure out how can we navigate this thing. It's of terrific interest beyond just NBA because other leagues are going to have to navigate this as well. There's this concern that unless we can satisfy this in some way, unless we can make sure that players are protected and the confidentiality and whoever rights need to be settled or settled, this data source might not last. So this is a way to understand play better, but it's also a way maybe to improve health and improve training and tailor training to individuals. What are you seeing happen? Like, what, where do you think this is going to go? How are you, what you're doing in the NBA going to help other leagues navigate this very tricky issue? Well, it's definitely, as you mentioned, a really uh, important topic. And I think we approach it from player health standpoint. Obviously, um, not naive to, to all the other implications that it has, but the main focus here is developing information that can help support player health. Mm-hmm. And that means really injury prevention uh, is at the cornerstone of that. This will allow us to get much more specific information to help with injury prevention. Now, that being said, how are we doing that? So. With the Players Association, we did develop this wearables committee. We have actually 
are in the midst of a, what we call a validation process. So one of the questions that we all had was these devices are, you know, available retail market and are they really measuring what they uh, purport to be measuring and right. how accurately sure. are they measuring it? Um, how reproducible is that? It's important from a player health standpoint for sure. And so we have engaged in a process with uh, Fraunhofer International Research Institute based in Germany and with the University of Michigan. We were actually doing validation testing in the research setting, okay. in the lab setting, to determine accuracy, reproducibility wow. uh, of, the, of the wearable devices. Okay. And so that allows us to have some confidence in what we are trying to establish with the data sets and the application of the data. Okay. We're pretty far along in that process, and we hope to have that completed uh, later this spring, actually. So, by the way, John, when you do that, do you take like, multiple vendors' equipment? Is that yes. part of the process? Yes. You're trying to find out who's got the best specs here? Well, we're not trying to necessarily compare one to the other in, in a direct comparison, but we're looking for uh, a measurement that's w- within a reasonable Re, uh, area of reproducibility and accuracy. So just testing reliability. Yeah, and so okay. we're not trying to rank them. We're, we're just basically hopefully going to have a large number of wearable I see. Uh, devices that meet a, a validation criteria that's okay. been established by the researchers. Got it. Um, and then through that, then teams and the league and the players and the player association can all have confidence that these devices are performing at the level that we feel is, is necessary. Okay. So this sounds great, but it also sounds like the low-hanging fruit, right? Let's, let's go do the non-controversial <laughs> part first. Well, I want to it's low-hanging fruit, but no one else has done it. Good. I mean, right. I, think, I think FIFA had a, had a smaller program. Okay. So when you asked about how is this going to benefit other leagues, in a way, this is going to allow other leagues to look at these devices and say, well, this one's been validated. Great. You know, John, I can tell you there are NFL teams that are concerned about the quality of some of the tracking data coming through. Right. I mean, I've heard that complaint before. It's, and it's as much a question as it is a complaint. Exactly. So, yes, it does address that. Okay. What, the, what about the thornier stuff around ownership and privacy? Yeah. So the privacy one, um, again, in collaboration with the Players Association, cybersecurity is a sort of a separate arm of what we're looking at. So there's, there's three parts. There's the validation part, cybersecurity, and then in-game use. Okay. And so for cybersecurity, um, again, we've come together with the Players Association, and the league has a separate process for that, and we understand, I understand that that's gone very well. So in terms of protecting that data, there will be measures in place to, to keep that from. How's it going to go? Like, who owns the, who owns the data? And right. I, and I, I'm, I'm saying this, my interest, I can tell you my interest here is that the data lives. Um, and But I'm very sympathetic to the concerns that the yeah. players have. So how can you as a league executive and how can the owners and the general managers of the teams guarantee that, they won't use the data in a way you know, that exploits the player in some way. Well, it's a, a really important question. And I think once we have the validation and once that's done, cybersecurity, I think, is pretty far along as well. I think that discussion will be really able to be had in a much more specific way with the leadership, you know, Michelle Roberts and Adam Silver. But I, I feel like that, again, if the, center, if the center of this is on player health, that this should be solvable. Um, and I think, really, it's in the player's best interest to, to have something that they can rely on that says, hey, this is going to help me in my career. It's going to help prolong my career, hopefully, right. by having this additional information that I can use to my benefit. And that's in the be- if it's in the best interest of the players, generally speaking, right. you know, uh, in terms of their health, 
it should be in the best interest of the league. Now, in terms of the other factors that, you know, television and, and monetizing, this, right. that's going to be something that's going to be had at a level much higher than mine and how <laughs> that's going to work out. But I do, think, I do think it'll work out because to the extent that there's going to be additional revenue generated, that's going to benefit the players too. Got it. Well, that's going to be interesting to watch. Um, the, I'm, I'm with you. It's like it should work. Right. There's too many benefits here, including for the players themselves, for it not to work. But there's a tricky little path from here to there. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in different leagues as we go along. Before you go, people love Adam Silver. People rave about him as a commissioner. Heck, there was talk recently about maybe the NFL is trying to get him to come over. In your experience, what is it that makes Silver such a great commissioner? I think uh, he's a combination. And I hope, I hope Adam doesn't hear it. But I think he's a combination <laughs> of someone who has... What I like to call, when, it, when, when I was at UCLA, we used to get people coming to us, try this product, try this, this is the best thing, it's going to help your players. So I would tell our staff, look, you have to have an open mind but a critical eye. And I think Adam has that. He's got that open mind and progressive thinking, but he's a critical thinker. And I think I would throw in one thing, he's got a big heart. Mm. He's got a capacity, I think, to combine those qualities and a real interest in being a steward of the game of basketball, uh, but understanding the business side of it and the interest in players and, and the community. And I think he understands that those things aren't mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. You can have a, a, a successful business and you can take care of people and you can grow a sport all at the same time. Uh, and, and I think that's what makes him unique. That's terrific. Great summary. Listen, John, thank you so much for stepping away from the conference and joining us. We wish you the best with your work there at the NBA and with the conference here over the next couple of days. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. You bet. John DeFiori, Director of Sports Medicine with the NBA. This is a SiriusXM Business Radio special program from the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and I'm on the floor of the conference today talking with Marianne Turk. Marianne is the COO of the NFL has been in that position for coming up on a year now after a career, I think, coming out of media. We'll hear more about it, but NFL Network before before arriving at NFL proper, and before that, Bell Canada um, and Bell Media, where she was um, president of that, rising through the ranks. Marianne, good morning and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Thank you for taking time out of your conference. You've already been working today, I understand. You were on yes, one of the first panels, exactly. like kicking off the whole conference, Marianne. That's right, with Jessica, yep. With the big boss. That's right. That's great. That's fantastic. Well, um, th- this being you're coming up on your one-year anniversary, you may not have ever been to the Sloan Conference before. No, I'm, it is my first time here, and it's really exciting to be here. I met the dean of the school on the way up to do the first, uh, to the, do the first panel, and it's, I can't believe how huge it is. And really kudos to Jessica for building it uh, over the last it's, few it's years. Incredible. It's unbelievable. And people are really excited to hear about what's going on and hear from all sorts of different aspects of the industry. So it's mm-hmm. good. And you can, it really plays at multiple levels. So you guys are doing the big, um, the big panels, like you right. just did one this morning. But then you've got all these vendors out here, this whole row of technology. And I can tell you from having come for years, this thing, they're getting pretty fancy out there. And there's lots of them doing crazy, ridiculous, sophisticated things. And then you can go play at the researcher level. And there's this right. really interesting research track, and there's a poster session over here. So it really works in lots of ways. And, and Daryl and Jessica have just done it. And yeah, the, and it's students. a nice combination of trade show and conference. It's kind of it's good, right? Yeah. So, can you tell us about your path to the COO position? So, you you you're Canadian, right? And educated in Canada, and you and you worked your way up even out of the operations group. With, well, with 
So I, I did two engineering degrees, um, a, an undergrad uh, in civil engineering and then a master's degree in uh, applied engineering math, actually, which is um, super interesting now that we're all talking about data and the fashionableness of data right now. R- right. Um, and so really I started in engineering and then I did an MBA and, and was at Bell Canada working in operations, running that op- field operation for George Cope, who's CEO at the time for years. And then we bought uh, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. We bought a portion of that uh, sports entity and I sat on the board of that. And we hired Tim Lewicki to be the CEO. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's how I met Todd Lewicki. He was at Tampa Bay Lightning then. The Lewicki family. Exactly. Reaches in lots of different corners of sports. And so... I was uh, then I moved from operations to be the president of Bell Media, um, which was part of the whole Bell Canada family. And while there, uh, Todd asked me if I'd be interested in coming to the NFL, and I was I was really happy where I was. It was a great job, and um, you know when those Lewicki brothers team up on you, there's not, there's <laughs> not a lot of place to move. Uh-huh. And so my husband and I looked at each other, and our kids were sort of in college, and said, "Hey, let's go on an adventure and go out west." And went to L.A. to run the network. And then um, uh, Todd decided to go and run the expansion team for the NHL in Seattle. And uh, Roger asked me to come to New York to help him out. Okay. What has that transition been like for you? Both the Canada to the U.S., from the the Midwest to maybe Northeast to the West Coast, from... Media to football. You did it via media, but you kind of was right. a, it was, you did move you know, fully into football, American football. Right. I mean, look, media is football, and football is media now. Those things are converging. So, the, you know, moving from Canada to the states, I would say, um, look, obviously, I was a, a football fan in Canada. We were the home of the NFL at TSN and CTV, the okay. media company I ran there. Okay. Um, Can I stop you there? Yeah. So this may be surprising to some Americans. I mean, we think you got Canadian football. You're probably Argonauts fans or something. But it turns out that Canadians are big NFL fans. Is that right? They're huge NFL fans. Okay. Yeah. And they have lots of uh, team affiliations. You know, if you go towards the east coast of the country through to Montreal, you have a lot of Pats fans in Toronto. You sort of split between... Uh, the Pats, the Bills, Green Bay, going out west, a little okay. bit of Green Bay, and then you get to the sort of the Pacific provinces, and you you get a lot of Seattle fans, okay, a lot of of course Dallas fans, Cowboys, but yeah. you know it's there's a lot of affinity in Canada. I mean, we'll we'll get um, we're one tenth the population of the states, and we'll get we'll over index on Super Bowl viewership actually. Like Is we'll get right? ten or eleven million viewers on the Super Bowl in, okay. in Canada, which sounds small, but. Um, and look, football in Canada on an, uh, sometimes on the four o'clock Sunday game or the Sunday night football, we'll we'll do better than hockey night in Canada on Saturday, okay. right? Which is sort of what we try to do. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, so this is a ridiculous question, but I'm curious: Does your Canadianness affect your leadership style? Now that you're in America, is it? Would, is, does your Canadianness stand out in any way, or do you manage any differently because of having been come up through that country and the organizations there? Um, I would say. Not so much, apart from uh, purposeful using of hockey analogies just to annoy okay. everybody that I work with, <laughs> and uh, some accent and, and uh, funny words and things like that. But really, no. I mean, in Canada, it's just, you know, there's not as much scale. So when you make business decisions, it's like a 3 or $4 million mistake is is big because, you know, there's just not that much scale and things are more integrated. So when I ran Bell Media, in order to get scale, you have to be able to move across businesses. So, you know, there was radio, there was out of home, there was cable, I had like 30 cable channels and there was CTV, which is a big uh, broadcast channel. So, 
you've got to be able to move across different genres easily because you just don't have the scale otherwise. Okay. And Do you think that. that Bill's particular skills, we, David Epstein is somebody else we're talking to today, and he's got a book coming out claiming that generalist is actually the way to, to succeed even today, and despite the narrative, like the world's getting more specialized. You're implying that maybe you develop some skills as a leader from having to go across a number of different businesses just to get scale. Oh, 100%. Look, when, when George Cope moved me from operations into media, I had been sitting around the table with the previous head of media for years. And so you learn a little bit through osmosis. But what you really learn when someone at a senior level puts you in, you, you learn how to listen to the people who are there. And you learn how to be really critical of talent in an area that you haven't been functionally deep in. And that skill is really important because that's how you build a team and you assess quickly. Because if you haven't been functionally deep in that area, you must surround yourself with people who are better than you. Mm-hmm. And that's an ego thing that you have to get around. But it's also just a perception of who you want to surround yourself with. And I've done that a couple of different times in my career now. And I really, it's part of what I enjoy most about doing my job. And one of the things about moving to the States that's been challenging is in different jobs I've had, people have come with me, people that I've worked with for years. And of course, bringing them across the border is not as easy, right? in In what capacity? Like a chief of staff kind of capacity? No, 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 no. Like, um, you know, when I worked in consulting and then I moved to Bell Canada, a couple of people that I worked with in consulting came to work for me at Bell Canada, run parts of the operation. I okay. When I moved from operations into media, a couple of people that uh, were in operations, I put them in charge of various okay. aspects of the media business, like out of home, which is very operational. I brought more operational chops into that. So, you know, they've come with me and really helped me be successful through my whole career in Canada. And now I'm finding those people down here. It's a whole new set of people. It's great. So this media and operations background you have seems perfect for your current job. Can you talk about NFL COO? What is that? What is, what's in your portfolio there? So I think different uh, leagues and organizations define the COO role differently. Really, if I think about it, um, there are two sides of the operation, right? There's the revenue side and there's kind of everything else, right? So at the NFL, it was really Brian Rollup and I are partners, and he runs the licensing and the revenue side, and then I run the media operations in LA, I run digital, I run films, I run marketing and uh, PR, public relations, government relations, HR, technology, all of that stuff. So really, we kind of are walk side by side when we uh, run the business. Okay. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about some of those pieces. You guys have some interesting initiatives. We're at the Sports Analytics Conference, of right. course. And so we, you know, the, the football analytics is transforming over the last couple of years. And you guys are playing a role. It's not just up to the teams to do these things. You guys are pushing some things out. So, for example, the next generation stats. Everyone's talking about NGS. Right. You have taken an active role as, on the league of making that more accessible to teams, educating teams to right. some extent. It's interesting as an outsider how you balance the tension between these are 32 competitors and they differ and they need to be able to differ. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we also want to bring them along to some extent and we want to make things easier for them. So how do you do you all even is that do you all experience that as a tension? Right. I mean, whether it's a tension or not, I think there is a strong belief amongst 32 members that a rising tide floats all boat and that you have to understand what is the tidal flow and then how are you going to differentiate yourself on top of that, right? right? And there are times to cooperate and there are times to compete. Okay. And I would say on data, people get it. They get that this is part of the common infrastructure that we have to build this league on so that we continue to be okay. um, the premium sports league in the world, really. And, right. Um, 
the they get that and then executing on that and understanding what you have to do at a club level, the kind of skills you need and who you have to bring in. That's where we spend a lot of time, and uh, Chris Halpin is the person at the league who leads this up. Um, he spends a lot of time with clubs, talking to them about who to bring in, what kind of management style, what kind of functional expertise on the data side. And then on my team, we have a group um, called Club Business Development. It would be like the team book group at the NBA. And we really focus on best practices, putting people out in the clubs to help them um, understand how to use data for all different things, whether it's next-gen stats or ticketing data, pricing data, consumer data, all of that sort of thing. So, look, I don't feel the tension on that at all. I feel an urgency to really, uh, with a lot of the clubs, to, you know, I want to be good at this. Help me be good at this and help me generate scale. Okay. You've mentioned the efforts around stats and NGS and the efforts around uh, revenue generation. Um, What about on the the sports science front? This is another frontier where there's emerging technologies that make more and more data available. Right. But uh, but because it's emerging, people don't yet know really what to do with it. Right. I know you guys work with, you know, various health organizations run epidemiological studies. How do you think about that front of things? How do you bring along what, what, how is the tide rising on that front and what room is left over for teams to do their own thing? Well, you heard it a little bit this morning, Michael was talking about um, data, like the next sort of frontier is really, really player health and safety. And I, as we look forward, uh, Jeff Miller is our head of player health and safety along with Dr. Alan Sills. And he, we are investing, um, we're going to be investing heavily, and we have already, in collecting uh, data and analyzing data around lower limb injuries, for, for instance, because there's been a lot of focus on uh, head injuries and concussion and rule changes and things like that, which is really important. We've seen great progress on that, uh, especially last season. The greatest lost time injury are lower limb injuries, right. and really what, you know, what, how, do, how do you predict that from happening? And he kind of got it a little bit this morning. Like, do you go all the way up the chain to how are you training? How are you stretching? What, what weights are you lifting? What, what can, can you predict when your Achilles is going to tear or whatever, right? So we are go- we're taking lots of video. We are trying to develop a database that's, a, that's tagged to the play. What kind of play was it? And then all the way from, through what cleats was he wearing? What turf is he on? Okay. What you know, all of that kind of thing. So really looking at that too. And it's, we're at the very beginning stages of it, but it's really exciting. And I believe it's something, especially lower uh, limb injuries where um, there's an element of being able to cooperate across all the leagues because it's in everybody's best interest for the players to be on the field or on the court as Mm -hmm. opposed to at home recuperating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this is a great example where teams are individually trying to do things, but you're saying, look, you know, I don't even care. We're going to give you as much possible, as best as possible. We're going to right. all learn this together. We're going to push out data. We're going to contract with the organizations to run the big studies, all in an effort to improve these things. Right. And when a team is doing something that's really innovative and really strong, it's not, you know, league knows best kind of mentality. It's, oh, that's interesting. Like, let's use that team as a, as a pilot study, okay. as a Petri dish, and then we can learn from that and okay. then roll it out more broadly. Okay. Terrific. Well, listen, Marianne, thank you for stepping out of your conference to be with us no for a little problem. bit. Uh, we, it's your first one. Hope you enjoy it. Yes. And we wish you the best with your work there at the NFL. Thank you very much. You bet. That was Marianne Turk, COO of the NFL. And before that, John DeFiore, Director of Sports Medicine with the NBA. 
This is Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to a special presentation of Wharton Business Radio from the floor of the 2019 MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. You're listening to The Edge of Analytics. Edge of Analytics. Here again, Cade Massey. Welcome back. In our final half hour, we want to share one of our favorites from the 2018 MIT Sports Analytics Conference. We had a chance last year to talk to Mina Kimes, TV personality, investigative reporter, and a woman with an interesting perspective on the use of data and how to blend data into traditional reporting. Had a great time talking to her last year. I want to share that with you in the next half hour. I'm talking to Mina Kimes this morning, who's just joined us, flew in from the West Coast yesterday, I assume. Mina, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Tell me about being at the conference at all. Have you been here before? <laughs> or is this your first time? I have not. I, I wanted to go last year. I was asked to do a panel, and I think I was traveling on the road for a story I think an NFL story at the moment, so I was very sad about missing it and excited to come. You were sad about missing it, excited this year. Why is that? What is it about the conference that excites you? Huh. Well, so I have kind of an interesting job at ESPN, and well, I have a lot of jobs mm-hmm. at ESPN, but my main jobs, I think, are um, writing features, often about football, but mm-hmm. narratives about a wide variety of things, and then talking about football uh, and using analytics and various tools that we have available to us at ESPN to talk about it in a certain mm-hmm. way. And those things, I think, inform each other because sometimes my story ideas or the way I approach narratives, even if they're not very numerate or there's only a few sort of parts of the story that even address those mm-hmm. subjects, they're very much informed by how I look at the game. Well, can you say more about that? A couple of your big pieces recently had, it, seemed, it, it, it felt to me there was a little bit of a parallel between your piece on Tyrod Taylor in the fall and the more recent piece on the decline in NFL attendance. Because both, in both cases, you go in and you say the data are ambiguous. <laughs> it's like you, you dig deep and you can make a case for either Tyrod Taylor is a good NFL quarterback or that he's not. And then with NFL attendance, you're like, well, some data say things are going to hell and some data yeah. say things are fine. In both cases, it's like data, it kind of felt like you didn't find data helpful. Well, so my background, I should add, is as a business journalist. I've only been okay. in sports for a few years. Mm-hmm. I worked at Fortune Magazine um, and Bloomberg News, mm-hmm. where I was doing investigative work. So I think people always ask me, did that help at all? And I said, well, not really, because I no longer look at the stock market or anything like that. But it helped insofar as that my approach has not changed a lot, which is I do tend to look to data to try to find answers to basic questions. And then if okay. I don't... I find that almost more interesting than if I did. And right, I kind of wonder, right, well, right. why is why can't this be answerable? Um, so, I, yeah, it's, it's a rare story where I don't take that approach towards truth. Okay. You said this thing, you said this thing in the Tyrod Taylor piece about data. You said it's something like statistics are like partial quotes. They're pliable, depending on what you yeah. want to do with them. That, I'm sure that's true, but some people use that as a way of like undermining statistical analysis or statistical analysis in sports. You know, people, you know, you hear these big execs who don't like stats say, well, they don't mean anything because of this or because of that. What's your position as a data user, but not necessarily a data scientist on that? You're always trying. So when I read a story, and that's less how I use statistics and more about how I regard them when I come across them, Mm -hmm. whether I read a story or... Um, a scouting report, which is something we're all dealing with right now, approaching the NFL draft, and we're seeing these numbers, and we're seeing, okay, a completion percentage for a quarterback, and it falls below a certain threshold, and it's when when do you stop? When do you keep asking? Okay, well, that's not... Is that really useful information? Mm -hmm. What else do we have to find out about that's behind this number? Mm -hmm. And what do... 
his weapons look like, what kind of situations was he in, what kind of offense do they run. So I see them always as a starting point. Okay. The problem is, you know, many stories treat them as an end and sort of a definitive answer. So I, right. for me, it's always um, regarding I, when I see numbers, I know that they can be used different ways and sometimes they're used to bolster arguments. And my intention as a reader or sometimes as a writer is to always un, sort of reverse engineer that or okay. try to understand what's the intentionality. Okay. Do you think there's room for us to improve the way journalists use data? So it would be great if more journalists thought about data in the way you're describing. You come at it from, what did you study at Yale? English. Oh, okay, so it wasn't <laughs> economics. All right. So you, at the very least, maybe you're geared up that way, but then you go into business journalism. Yes. And it helps a lot that. But the way you're talking about it, I, I'm guessing, isn't the way a lot of journalists think about data. Can, could we... Can we bring them in for a workshop? Can we spend a week with them? Is there a, what's the best way for us to kind of bolster the use of data, or at least the interpretation of data, among traditional journalists? I think to explain to people that it's not intimidating. Like when I was a business journalist, there were a lot of financial markets writers who were very intimidated by the idea, oh, I have to build a DCF model. You don't have to build a DCF model. I mean, if you're Andrew Ross Sorkin and you want to brag about it, maybe. But like for the most part, you, okay. you don't have to do, you know, advanced... Um, economics or anything like you just need to ask the right questions mm -hmm. so you have to know what the numbers mean when you see them and um, and then you have to learn well then what why mm -hmm. do they look like this mm -hmm. what and, and I think the same thing is true for sports right mm -hmm. um, sure I'm on true media all day looking at trends and teams and the kind of plays they're running and who's been successful and who's mm -hmm. not been successful in certain situations mm -hmm. I'm not building anything I'm mm -hmm. not everything's quite easy to read it's all about okay asking the questions that emerge mm -hmm. from the data and they're mm -hmm. very it's very very useful for storytelling mm -hmm. speaking of which you do a podcast with Bill Barnwell Bill is one of, as far as I'm concerned, I think many people, he's one of the best out there. And one of the reasons is because he's good with data. But it's not just good with data. He's also a hell of a journalist and a hell of a writer. Great writer. What, one, how did you guys get hooked up? And then what have you, <laughs> what have you learned from working with him? I met Bill, gosh, it was before I was even working at ESPN. It was when I was a business journalist. And I was... A business journalist, very serious, hard-hitting stories on companies. But mm -hmm. then I would I spend all day sharing dumb football memes, or in my <laughs> private time on like obscure Seahawks forums okay. about okay. you know what practice squatter we should cut and that kind of thing. So I had this kind of weird side life. Okay. So he used to do a podcast with a guy named Robert Mays, also wonderful, and they had a live show in Brooklyn and said, "Hey, we're looking for uh, you know." A third guest, okay. and that's how he. They invited me. You clearly have this weird fascination. Would you like to join us? Okay. And that's how I met him. Okay. And how long have you been doing that with him now? Um, we've been doing it a couple of years. They, ESPN started a new football-focused podcast called the Nickel Package Podcast. Okay. That Bill, I do it with Dominique Foxworth, who I also yeah. do a radio show with, yeah. who's also very terrific and mm -hmm. very data-focused in his analysis, and um, we're part of a kind of a small small group at ESPN. Do you think your Do you think your work, your other work, say your investigative journalism or your work on other ESPN platforms, is any different because of having worked with Bill or Dominique or these guys who are a little bit more data-focused? Yeah, I think the way I look at the sport is different. Yeah. I mean, what's an example? choosing to write about Tyrod Taylor is ah. my story before that so I usually do a few NFL features every year for the magazine I did a story in September or August that was about Aaron Rodgers that was not either not football folk both not football focused and numerate at okay. all okay um because there's really not a lot to be said right, about yeah. you know, 
I'm going to tell you guys if Aaron Rodgers is good, get ready for the case. No, but that was much more about his personality. Okay. Um, you know, but a story like Tyrod Taylor or some of the other athletes we've looked at over the years, um, that, that was driven by numbers questions and, mm-hmm. and things that we were seeing or hearing about in that community. And um, mm-hmm. I was fascinated at the time by sort of the divide in perception that reflected the divide in how people look at football based mm-hmm. on statistics. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely informs my ideas and how I approach them. What room is there in, in, a, in an around-the-horn world, what room is there for statistical analysis? Like, How do you bring like actual rigorous thought? <coughs> Bless you. Well, I think I... I do remember, maybe I wasn't rewarded with points for correcting someone, I'm guessing it was Woody Page or something, on the Eagles actually having a easy strength of schedule, Okay. even though everybody was like, the, oh, the NFC is so hard, right, and I was right, like, right. well, actually, if you go through these, okay. and I, I remember that was not appreciated. <laughs> uh, but effective. Yeah, but with, on a show like that, it's a little different, right, because I'm not... Um, like I could say their DVOA of a team is something, but yeah. it wouldn't be sort of the I would audience. I'd have, then have to explain it to the audience, and you don't really have time yeah, to do that. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's about kind of choosing things that matter and can be explained very succinctly. Right, right, right. So uh, just a couple a couple more minutes. We're talking to Mina Kimes, ESPN, and uh, you've talked about this background you have in like hardcore business journalism. Yeah. At some point, you shifted to ESPN. It sounds like you're a lifetime Seahawks fan and probably, therefore, maybe a general sports fan. But how do you make yeah. that shift? Yeah, so I, you're right. I was a lifetime sports fan, Mariners, Seahawks. Okay. Um, and even as I was a business journalist and on that career path, it was just an interest I maintained that I shared on social media. Mm-hmm. I wrote a piece for Slate about being a football fan that someone at ESPN saw in 2014, and then they hired me mm-hmm. that month mm-hmm. away from Bloomberg. Mm. Was it a hard decision to make to do that? Yeah, I mean, I was 28, or I don't know at the time, but you know, I certainly committed some time and energy and towards mm-hmm. one area of journalism, so it felt rather risky. I mean, I'd, I had institutional knowledge and sources mm-hmm. and business, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I still miss it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And... Um, was jumping into a field that I knew absolutely nothing about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I, there's things that translate quite easily. Reporting is reporting. Mm-hmm. Asking questions is asking questions. Writing mm-hmm. is writing. But there are simple, like, little things that you have to learn. Like, mm-hmm. how do I get into a locker room? You know, that you don't right. know if you're new to it. And some people grow up doing that stuff. So that, yeah. What about the, like, the, sometimes we get given a hard time because it's just sports like in academia there's a bit of a look down your nose because it's just sports <laughs> what's especially having made that d- transition from something yeah. that's taken seriously universally like business to something that's just sports what's your sense of sports in the world i mean do you have that kind of higher level moments where you go oh this is profoundly important actually. yeah i my favorite moments are when i hear from people who read my stories who aren't sports fans mm-hmm. and they explain to me why they found them interesting because not because i'm not writing for sports fans i am but i want the stories themselves to always be about something more than okay like tyrod taylor it's about so much he, he's on it wasn't like a huge part in that piece honestly he's kind of a quiet guy yeah. but some of the themes and issues that he represented i yeah. think really transcend him or um you know last year i did a story on von miller and it it wasn't just like, what's it like to hang out with Von Miller? You know, the, right. the, the issues that come to play, I think, are what make these stories really interesting. Okay. 
Last question. The draft's coming up. You mentioned that that's something you're keeping an eye on. What, I do. What I love the draft. about in the draft? Amazing. It was in Philly last year. Yes. And it was such a ridiculous event. It was so much fun. It was absurd yeah. how they created this thing out of thin air, and it was just a complete ball. And there's like no real, no harm done. Of course, it's frivolous and ridiculous, but it's no harm done. It's fun to follow for lots of reasons. What about this year's draft has your attention? The quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's already beginning. The you, I mentioned earlier, I like to do stories that are reflect large issues larger than them. You can take each of these quarterbacks and the way they're talked about, the way they're looked at, the mm. way they're analyzed is about so much more than these four or five, bo- you know, mm. boys. They're boys, really. Yeah, boys, yeah. And it's, it's really interesting to watch it start now, mm-hmm. watch that process now. Mm-hmm. And it also tells you a lot about the future of the NFL, the way teams think about the position, which is evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like the draft as a chance to kind of reflect on that mm-hmm. sort of directionality. Mm-hmm. Do you, as a football fan, do you feel like you can look at these guys and think about them and discern for yourself who's going to be better? Like, if you were the GM, who you would take? It's mostly, it's a shot in the dark, honestly. Um, this group in particular, I think yeah. they, they're all flawed in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a, when I think of the top five or six, there's not a surefire thing mm-hmm. or a surefire mm-hmm. bust, which is also mm-hmm. part of what makes it so interesting. There's mm-hmm. no Andrew Luck, um, mm-hmm. but there's no Johnny Manziel, who I think you know, we should have known in retrospect how that would have ended out mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. How many of these guys are going to go in the first round? We, we I always say less than it ends up being because it, you know we have to people wait get and see. crazy. There's still a few free agents floating around, yeah. so it's going to be interesting to see how Keenan Bradford mm-hmm. shake up. Yep. Obviously, wherever Kirk Cousins lands. Yep. Um, but beyond that, we've got probably one, two, three, anywhere between three and five. Mm-hmm. If you had to pick, if you had to put your money on one, who would you put? Your, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my answer as well. Who do I think is the yeah. best? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a really big fan of Josh Rosen's game. Mm-hmm. Number mm-hmm. two for me would probably be Baker. Okay. Who's, so your, who's yours? <laughs> so I'm a Texas guy, so I'm, I'm anti-Baker just, you know, viscerally. Which <laughs> that's, is, that's fair. Which is, I'm just giving my subjective bias. But also because of Texas, we watched Sam Darnold have a hell of a game against us early in the year. Mm-hmm. And you look at the tools that guy has, and I have a hard time believing it doesn't translate. Also, I'm not as worried about interceptions. There's some analysis that say people yeah. who, you know, the willingness to throw is important. Um, and I'm deeply skeptical of um, Josh Allen. I've, you know, I've got these biases, you know. I can't believe, you know, the competition doesn't measure as much. Josh Rosen, it's all biases. It's just different kind of bias left and yeah. right. I mean, Rosen seems like such a normal-sized guy, normal guy. How could yeah. he be an NFL quarterback? So it's just one bias after the other. I've learned over time that I really don't know. I mean, I just have, have to admit myself. Really I just don't know. don't know. It's so hard because I think – Perhaps one of the biggest lessons from the NFL season is how much situation affects quarterbacking, which has always been true. And people always, unless you're Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady, it's like, to me, you know, 90% team scheme. And, and that's why you can get a Case Keenum and a Nick Foles going that far, right? And but, it's still underappreciated. It's, I mean, yeah. write, write that one, man. Like every other year, write that piece because it's still underappreciated. Hey guys, yeah. <laughs> there's really only like three quarterbacks that are better, that can you put them anywhere. And I think the same applies to college. Yeah. You know, when we look back on... Uh, Lamar Jackson, who's probably the most polarizing draft prospect right. at the moment, um, terrible situation, not scheme-wise, but um, just very bad teammates around him, right. lots of drops, things right. you might not pick up in the statistics. So. Right. Okay. Well, Mina Kimes, thanks for joining us. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Enjoy the conference. Thank you. That was Mina Kimes from the 2018 
MIT Sports Analytics Conference, one of our favorite interviews from the previous year. Mina, of course, a TV personality and investigative reporter, but she brings a little data to her conversations. That has been a special presentation of business radio from the floor of the MIT Sports Analytics Conference. We spoke in the first half hour with David Epstein and Maria Konnikova, authors both of books coming out in 2019. In the second half hour, Ann Milgram, using analytics in criminal justice, of all things, and Ted Knudsen, leading the fight for advancing soccer analytics. He's the founder and owner of, of, of StatsBomb. At the top of the second hour, we had Marianne Turk and John DeFiori. Marianne is the COO of the NFL after a career in Canada with Bell Media. And John DeFiori heads up sports medicine for the NBA after a long career of practicing medicine with the UCLA Bruins Athletic Department. Finally, in the last half hour, we grabbed Mina Kimes, a writer um, who we very much enjoyed talking with in 2018. That has been the special program for Business Radio from MIT. This is Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball. If you missed any of it, you can pick it up on the SiriusXM app, or you can find us on the Wharton Moneyball podcast. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 